I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is your host as ever, Matt Dixon. And today we do part two of the in-depth performance discussion with the one and only Alex Hutchinson. And this week, the focus is strength training for endurance athletes and the big topic of recovery. We're also going to dive into a little bit of research and mindset. But I should note before you dive into today's show, if you missed last week, I want to flag it up right now. It is a barn burner. We get meaty into the topics around all components of training and nutrition, all with the same setup as you're going to hear this week, what I like to title speed dating. Four or five minutes on each topic, allowing ourselves to cover off on a wide range of hot topics in the big world of performance. And why do we do it like this? Well, because Alex is the resource. He is on the cutting edge on such a broad range of topics. We just couldn't bypass the chance to hit things up in a really broad range of areas. And so, as a reminder, who we're talking to today, Alex Hutchinson, he is a journalist. He runs the Sweat Science column at Outside Magazine. He is the author of the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, and in his prior life was a national-level runner at the Canadian national teams in cross-country, track, road, and even mountain running. And underneath all of that, well, yes, he's one of those. He's a scientist, a PhD in physics from Cambridge University, as well as a postdoc in quantum computing. And so, yes, folks, you can tell this today is going to be another goodie. And if you haven't read it yet, I highly encourage you reach out and grab a copy of Endure. It is compelling. And I promise you, it's about the mind, but it is going to open your mind with so much around what goes in to high performance. In addition, follow Alex. We're going to add it to the show notes, but his informative Twitter account, well, that handle is very simple. It's at Sweat Science, the same name as his column that he regularly writes for Outside Magazine. Now, before we dive into the meat and potatoes with a few do not miss opportunities for you, because we need to do as ever we do, the Squatty Update. And we begin with the Squatty Update, connecting with Alex. Yes, Alex Hutchinson that you're going to listen to today live. Because I think that you won't be able to leave last week's show, tailored and buckled on with this week's show, without having a bucket load of your own questions around performance. And I bet you're sitting there by the end of the day just going, oh, I wish I could sit down with Alex and ask him a few of my questions live. Well, you know what? You can. Because Purple Patch athletes and Performance Academy members are going to get an exclusive chance to attend a live Q&A with Alex himself. It's all going off in the coming weeks. And so head to the show notes to get in with the gang. Remember, as Clint Boone from the Inspiral Carpets once sang, the cool people know who the cool people are. And they also are the ones that perform the best in sport and life. 
Also, while we're at it, I want to give a little call out. This is something that we have asked. We've had a lot of people ask us about. And so we said, look, why not? We can do this. If you train with a group of friends, or maybe you're a member of a tri club or a team, and you're in search of integrating some really high quality programming, I would actually say purple patch programming into your club, but also so that it tailors to the need of the individual, well, bingo, we can do it. We can get you away from all of that generic group work that you do and also bypass the need for each member of your group to have really expensive one-to-one coaching. And so I invite you, power your club or team with the Purple Patch Tri-Squad. Following the launch of our squad program, we have evolved and tinkered with the platform and service for about the last 18 months. And now we really feel like we're equipped to deliver meaningful and personalized programming to clubs and teams. And so if you want to get your own concierge, your own coach, access to live and video on demand training sessions, tailored programming that guides you down to the events that your group are getting ready for, reach out to us. If it piques interest, let's have a conversation. It may or may not fit your needs, but hey, why not? No pressure. Simply ping us, info at purplepatchfitness.com, and let's find out if we're a fit and we can do something for you. But now, the good news Well, Barry, yeah, big Bazza, welcome back, mate. You are all vaccinated after last week. You're back on top of your game and you've got your instruments ready. You're primed at the pump. And so this week we are going to do Word of the Week. Over to you, Barry. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wings. Let's open the book. It's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. Yes, the word of the week this week is courage. Now, to break down this word of the week, I want to tell you a little story. Because many moons ago, I had a well-known distance runner reach out to me. And his name was Ryan Hall. He was already established running star. And he happened to be really good mates with a purple patch pro athlete of the time, Chris Lieto. And Ryan needed help because he was, in a word, really tired. Now, as I was known or am known as the recovery coach, seemed like a good place to reach out to. But Ryan was really tired. And after some time of getting to know Ryan and getting to see what he was doing, I gave him my review. And I said, Ryan, you are so close to getting your recipe right. The only things that you're missing proper eating, strength, recovery, and a smart approach to training. Now, of course, yes, I joke, there was a touch of irony in my voice. But the most important thing that I said to him was this, Ryan, big miles and tough intervals are the easiest part of world-class performance. What takes real courage is embracing recovery. And so, yes, any dipshit can train hard, but it takes courage to recover. And listeners, that is why we've got a whole wall of our recovery lounge at the Purple Patch Center with a bright fluorescent light that says just this, it takes courage. Because the road to your performance absolutely requires commitment. It necessitates hard work consistently, but the driver of the massive results is the courage 
to recover well and ensure that the adaptations can occur. So eight weeks following that conversation, Ryan went on to go two hours and four minutes at the Boston Marathon, and it is still the fastest marathon run by an American runner. So I ask you, does that turn me into an elite running coach? Not at all. I wouldn't pretend to be. But athletics is athletics. And I happened to find Ryan at a place in his career where unlocking success wasn't about doing more, but instead it was simply about having the courage to recover. What an athlete. And I might also add right now, what a coach Ryan has become. And it's wonderful to see. And if you follow Ryan, goodness me, it looks a little different now in size with his new obsession and love of strength training. But he has nurtured some world-class performance, including his wife, Sarah Hall. But for us, bear it in mind on your journey and never forget, it takes courage. Our word of the week. But now, guys, it is time. Alex Hutchinson and the world of performance. Strength, recovery, research. It's a goodie. Please sit back and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the meat and potatoes. So next category, strong light bull, smart light tractor, a purple patch saying we're going to talk about strength and conditioning. And I'll preface this. I believe we are designed to move heavy things. And uh, and, and I would say that we, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but the positive role of strength and all that falls underneath that title, strength and conditioning, mobility, everything else that falls underneath, it really is gaining traction in the world of endurance sports. And I would say it's it's about time. I think fewer and fewer athletes and coaches relegate the value or, or really can afford to just simply ignore it now. But with this, there's still confusion with how to implement it properly. So, so I think we should dig in. And we're going to come back to aging. Uh, I said that we're going to shelve that conversation. So how effective do you believe is strength training uh, Countering the effects of aging, and I don't mean really slowing the aging process per se, but but we can go there if we want, but but actually sort of also preserving endurance performance. Yeah, there are a handful of studies that really caught my attention uh, yeah, seven or eight years ago that that where the design was, okay, let's take a bunch of young athletes, let's say in their 20s, and older athletes in their 50s, and let's give them all strength training and let's measure some outcome variables. And what they found is it's not, there's not a ton that happens if for a healthy young 25 year old, like in the long term, I'm sure strength training helps, but if you do six weeks of strength training, it's not like they suddenly, you know, transform into world beaters for the older athletes. <laughs> on the other hand, they did suddenly transform like, and, and there was a dramatic difference. And the, and the big difference was in, uh, economy, both cycling. There was a cycling study with cycling economy and or several, I think, and there were some running studies with running economy where doing some strength training um, had an immediate effect on uh, efficiency of movement. So in other words, how much energy it takes to cover a, a given ground. So there are many, there may be many things that strength training does. It, it's good to be strong, but on an immediate level, uh, it, what this is telling us is that by the time you're in your 40s or 50s, you're losing muscle mass 
at a, you know, you've lost or you've generally lost enough muscle mass that it's actually you, you have to spend more energy to move your legs. You're, you're paying a double penalty. Penalty. You're weaker, but you're also less efficient. And if you do some good strength training, that can relatively quickly fight off that loss of of, of economy. So that to me, that was a really uh, compelling argument because not that I don't believe strength training does other things, but it's like, you can see that very quickly. And so it's like, Oh, okay. And I'm 45 now. It's like, yeah, I really need to be, be doing, I I've always done some upper body stuff, but I was like, no, I need to start doing leg stuff because clearly that is, is a, a easily measurable way of, of, uh, slowing the effects of age. So, so we, we, we obviously went to the natural thing, which is strength training for the older athlete. Uh, but but I want to come back. You mentioned in, in answering that the research comparing the young 20-year-old or so athlete to the older athlete. I, I want to come to that young 20-year-old and just talk about strength training globally to enhance endurance performance. And what's the, what's the approach? What's the, the benefit for a regular young bursting 25-year-old athlete that's seeking to thrive in running performance. How would you how would you go about that? Yeah. So again, I think there's we can hypothesize a lot of different benefits, whether you're talking about injury prevention and things like that. Again, the one that turns out to be easiest to measure is uh running economy. So it's not, it's not, it doesn't jump out the way it does in the older athletes, but it is the most reliable thing you can find that you can improve efficiency. And the way that seems to happen, it, unlike with the older athletes, it's not so much about putting on muscle. It's actually about the connection between the brain and the muscles. And so uh, what the studies tend to find is that plyometric training, which is explosive movements or relatively heavy weights, seem to have the, the biggest and most immediate effect uh, quickly enough that you can conclude that it's probably neuromuscular gains. It's probably the, improving that connection between the brain and the muscles as much as it is about putting on new muscles. Now that's th- that's really interesting because that that breaks in many ways a, an argument that is often told is we use the outside nature as our strength training. In other words, I do hill running. Or back in the day when I was an athlete and we we're a very similar age, it was okay, go to the gym, but go and do a hundred and fifty low low weight squats type thing but you're already talking about something quite different here that is very very difficult to sort of um, replicate just in regular running or regular cycling yeah and, and you know again i was the same as you i mean for for me it was the classic we would we would go and do three sets of 12 12 reps of everything and that there's a role for that that's that, that's not bad training or anything but over the last 10 years among elite athletes, I think the trend has really been towards, you know, quite heavyweights that require specialized equipment in some ways, or at least that require expertise, or else plyometrics, which don't really, things like box jumps and and uh, and things like that that uh, that don't require specialized equipment, but do require some some knowledge and some guidance. It's it's not just you know picking up the the nearest soup can and and lifting it up a bunch of times and and i would say you know one thing that, that you mentioned earlier with economy of movement so the movement patterns are really important in this and uh, and in fact if you begin to implement i'm going to i'll do a little shout out to listeners right now if you haven't listened to our recent 
episode on a, a proper strength and conditioning program with with our resident expert, Coach Mike Wasinski. I'd really recommend you go and listen to it because I thought we did a great job of outlining the the progression of strength, beginning with movement patterns, so that then at the end of the scale that the high load stuff and the plyometric based stuff can be most effective and of course most safe so i'm just going to do a shout out there and and i think it's it's really important so with that we're going to go to the final category and it's uh, it's the one that is closest to home for me alex we're going to talk about recovery and i've somehow managed to earn this label of the recovery coach and uh, and i was labeled that originally not not necessarily in a positive lens many people call <laughs> me the recovery coach assuming that my focus and belief in the importance of recovery this is now going back 10 15 years and i used to talk a lot about stress a lot about the the importance of recovery for an endurance athlete and many made the jump to, to assume that I was talking about less is more and this is a shortcut to performance. Now in 2021, I think that uh, it's one of the more trendy words in sports performance and, uh, and particularly if we, we associate sleep with that. With that, I think that there's a tendency for when something becomes more trendy, there's a, there's a tendency for it to sort of open up the door for fads and quackery, etc., so I framed this subject, an important subject for sports performance and life performance. It's not just a rest day from activity that we're talking about here. So let's ease our way into this subject. We know that consistency is almost every coach's magic word when it comes to high performance. How do we string together consistency? And we also know that recovery is a critical component to facilitate consistency. So, Alex Hutchinson, what would you say for you are the key two to three habits that optimize recovery? I guess the first thing I would start with is is actually to, to sort of flip it around. The, the most important part of recovery is proper uh, training planning is, is, you know, the if you have a poorly designed training plan that is pushing you to to run or to, to train too much, too hard, too intensely, too frequently, then there are no magic buttons that will allow you to 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 reverse that. You you can't you know, if you train twice as much as you should, you can't take twice as many ice baths and and sit in the pneumatic leg massager for twice as long and that will magically fix that. So proper planning and periodization of your training I think is is absolutely, you know, stage zero. And then between your workouts, uh, uh, nutrition and sleep and stress are the, the three things, none, none of which are available by mail order. Um, but the, the, that's sort of, you know, 90, 95% of, of what you need to take care of is eating sufficiently and, you know, healthily and s taking care to sleep um, and getting as much as you need. And, and being aware of the other factors in your life that are contributing to your stress, because stress is stress, whether it comes from your workout or from your job or your family situation or whatever that is. And you've got to be able to, to think about it holistically. Goodness me. You know, when I talk about recovery, I, I talk about it in three categories. And the first is, and it's in this order, the first is training and everything that cascades under training. The second is nutrition and sleep 
and uh, and uh, and that side of things. And those collectively, we call when you get those right, we we have a we have all sorts of cute sayings at Purple Patch, but we say that is nailing the basics. You're ninety seven percent of the way there. And then the third category is modalities, and that's everything you can buy. And that is a you know, <laughs> afterthought. While all of them are uh, potentially important and helpful in their own right, they come after the absolute basics of those two elements. So I haven't got any argument with that because you you basically said that. And then I, I think that one thing I want to reinforce: stress is stress. And that's a really important component and particularly important with the year that we've just gone through where I think that I think there was a little bit of an epiphany for some people to realize the when baseline when baseline stress ramped up, it, it, it really did have an impact on many people. And obviously, we've just been through a very, very stressful year. So um, so uh, so super really interesting. So I got the right uh, answers. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> so, so in other words, you got a gold star. Congratulations. All right. Uh, yeah. Now, now I, I happened to be reading the other day uh, an old article of yours around uh, sleep and sleep research that was in Outside Magazine. There's a couple of articles that we're going to add to the show notes for people so that they can read some of your work around some of the topics that we discussed today. But really interested if you know anything interesting, anything upcoming potentially around sleep research obviously a really important topic for executives for athletes for for everybody looking to to thrive and so what's the latest in sleep research yeah you know I, what was it two or three years ago now that uh matthew walker's book was a big bestseller mm -hmm. why we sleep and everyone was talking about sleep around the same time as i went to a a, a conference that was put on by by on the podium which is canada's olympic uh um, high performance research support thing. And, you know, they had talks from all of Canada's uh, Olympic experts. And one of them was a guy named Charles Samuels, who's Canada's Olympic sleep expert. He's the one all the Olympic athletes consult. And, uh, there were, uh, I had a, had a chance to chat with him before his talk. And it was, I was sort of fawning about, Oh, it's so nice to see a talk where there's, you know, such strong evidence. We know that sleep is so important. He was like, Oh really? What evidence? Um, and so, you know, he sort of reminded me that we know sleep is important, but actually sleep research is very hard to do. And it, there's very little sleep research that uh, of any reasonable quality that actually deals with athletes because it's a, a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a subset within a subset of a, of a relatively minor area of research. So the, we, we know less than we think we do. And I, I would say that the biggest trend lately in sleep research is sleep monitoring or not sleep research in, in dealing with sleep for the general public is buying various devices that that monitor your sleep and tell you if you're doing it right or doing it wrong. And uh Charles Samuels's take was was uh you know if if you want to know how your athlete is sleeping the the best tool is a question how are you sleeping? Um and that's that's basically the, the best way to do it because sleep is one of those paradoxical things that the more you obsess about it, that doesn't necessarily mean the better you get at it. And in some ways it can be the worst you get at it. If you, if you are measuring every minute of sleep, you are stressing about it. And if you're stressing about it, that can interfere with your sleep. Uh, and I, I had this experience. I I've been for an article, I was testing out the new Apple watch. I was writing an article about it for outside magazine and it now incorporates sleep monitoring and the first night i had it on i had this crazy dream that i had woken up but i couldn't move because if i moved my watch would know i was awake and that would screw up my sleep data and uh and then i woke up 
and uh, sure enough, I just lay there. I was like, yeah, just just lie still, and then you know you, you'll you'll get good sleep data. So I think it's great that we're recognizing the importance of sleep, but I think we we need to be very very cautious about medicalizing it, about turning it into an object of obsession that then becomes just another source of stress. It, it, and then it starts to fall into the behaviors that we talked about around nutrition as well. And, uh, exactly, and in fact, exactly. by, by monitoring, it becomes a pass fail in the same way that unfortunately too many people approach training, approach nutrition and, uh, and everything else that falls underneath it. Um, I absolutely agree. Environment being really important, habits being really important. And, and it sounds paradoxical, but don't stress too much <laughs> yeah. about it. Uh, what about, uh, and this might be a quick answer because we, we sort of went there a little bit with HRV and we, 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 we sort of covered off, I think, on this subject, but I do still want to answer around data points that help us gauge recovery. What do you think athletes should spend more time tracking? Is there any sort of recovery score? I remember a, a, uh, an app uh, a while ago, rest-wise, that was a, uh, a supposed route of uh, recovery, status of recovery, etc. Road to paralysis. I mean, if there's road one to obsession. Thing, yeah, if, if, if there's one thing that I would, you know, if you've got a training log, which you pr probably should, if you're if you're performance focused, um, you know, record how much you train and how hard it was, and record how you feel. Like that's, so, you know, step one is you do a workout and you're going to give yourself a, a mark, a, a score out of 10 on how hard that felt. Step two is if you want to get beyond that, you know, it's like when you wake up in the morning, how do I feel today? Uh, how do, do I feel recovered? Um, if you're not doing that, then I would say there's very little value to adding, whether it's HRV or, or any other sort of uh, proprietary recovery metric, if you're not also at the very least monitoring how you feel, then you can, if you're the type of person who likes that data, then you may get some value from adding something like HRV uh, and, and comparing it to your, your own subjective sense of how recovered you are. But, but I would say step, step zero is, is assessing how you feel. Because yeah, if you feel like crap for for you know five mornings in a row or five workouts in a row, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. That might just mean because you're training hard. But you, you need to be able to understand why why you're feeling like crap and whether that's consistent with where you want to be at that point in time. Super. So I'm going to move to modalities, the, the third tier, and this is going to be like a, a Western shootout fact and fiction. I, I want to really short <laughs> answers, but uh, we're um, at the uh, outside of the saloon. A couple of things, just fact fiction and any little bullets to add because uh, many people would say, why didn't you ask him about this? And so ice baths, compression, uh, massage, give us some bullets on those three. Okay. <laughs> I'll say this. I, I think ice baths feel good. I, and I always felt like I felt better the next morning. I enjoy massages. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with compression. I, I, I find compression tights. I don't find them comfortable, but that's probably because I haven't given them a shot. Uh, the, the, the research, these fall into the category of physiologically plausible. It's not, you know, 
there's a very small category of things that we know work, stuff like, like say caffeine for for performance. And there's also a category that's relatively small of things we know don't work, things like power balance bracelets. It's just a piece of plastic. It, you know, it doesn't al- align your energy bands. Everything else, we're in this gray zone where, yeah, I, I, you know, you sit in an ice bath, you're definitely having changes to your circulation, changes to your you know protein expression and things like that. Does it make you better in a way that's independent of how it makes you feel in your mind? It's very hard to know, but if I were a, a, you know, a serious athlete training hard and it made me feel good and it didn't require me to spend a lot of money, then I would, I, I would go ahead and do it. But I would, I would keep it its importance in context. I wouldn't stress if I couldn't get my ice bath that day. I wouldn't do, try and stack nine recovery modalities on top of each other. So ice bath, like I said, feels good. Compression uh, massage, all those things are in the sort of plausible and sort of well tested by athletes category. Good stuff, and and I know why the uh, the compression tights you you don't really utilize them too much. You just you you need to go down a size, Alex. Your legs are too skinny. You're not holding on. Much <laughs> that that so may be the problem. Bag, they probably bag you on you. You know. <laughs> so so let's let, let's finish off. I I, I want to finish off with some mindset and a couple of global questions to to put this to bed. And I thought about what I'm what I'm going to ask him around mindset. When I'm going to get to a chance, and so. It's been a chaotic year last year. The world didn't stop, though, and your, your world of performance particularly carried on. So let me ask you this. What's the most overlooked study that you read last year? Yeah, you know, there's one that I wrote about early in 2020 that I I think I don't think people noticed, or I don't know, maybe it's just not as interesting as I thought, but it, it was looking at the longevity of Olympic athletes and there's there's a, a well-known fact uh, or observation that olympic athletes live longer than other athletes or than other people you know matched people people who are born in the same place with the same characteristics and the usual assumption is well they do all that training so they're physically healthy and i i think there's something to that but there's a guy in in the netherlands uh, an economist actually who's been looking more deeply into this and he he's found some interesting observations for example gold medalists live longer than silver medalists. And he's taught, he does analysis dating back, you know, a century's worth of Olympic athletes from various countries like the Netherlands. Um, bronze, but that's, that's sort of understandable. Gold, it's better to be gold than silver. Bronze medalists also live better than silver medalists, live longer than silver, than silver medalists. And that's harder to explain. And, um, because, you know, it's not that bronze medalists train harder than silver medalists. And so just to cut to the chase, basically what he's arguing is with, and, and this isn't his only study, he has a, a few studies that all point to this conclusion that there's a sense of, of how you assess how, you know, an outcome that, that is your response to it that matters. And if you feel like it's been positive and you've, you've, you've kind of quote unquote won, then that's a positive. You you feel good about yourself, and if you feel like you've lost, you're adding a stress on top of all the other stresses. So, silver medalists famously tend to. Uh, there's been analyses of like facial expression on the medal podium too. Silver medalists always look unhappy mm-hmm. because they think I could have won gold, whereas bronze medalists are uh, always look happy because, or mostly look happy because they're like, thank God I got on the podium. I could have been fourth, and so uh, this really made an impression on me in terms of like I, in my life in general. I'm very goal oriented. I'm, you know, I'm trying to climb the ladder and achieve things and balance family life. And I know on a, in a, on a rational 
level that it's like, oh yeah, if I write a book that does better than my current book, or if I publish something really prestigious, that'll feel good, but it's not going to make me a better person or whatever. But in, it's, it's easy to say that, but I think deep down, we all think that it's the accomplishment that matters. And looking at this data on Olympic athletes and things like bronze medalists living longer than silver medalists, it's sort of a reminder to me that no, 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 it's, it's not about the absolute nature of the accomplishment. It's about how you internalize it. What do you say to yourself? Do you, are you satisfied with what you did? Can you be happy with the journey? Could you be happy with fourth place? Maybe, maybe the fourth place finishers who have a good outlook on life and a good sense of balance are even do better off than the gold medal winners. So that's something I've tried to keep in mind that it's not, it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about how you perceive that win or loss, uh, both in the long term, maybe, but also even in the short term of, of how you're feeling about life. Super. I'll, um, I'll make sure that we put that that uh article into the uh, into the show notes for everyone so so if we look forward here and i guess if if you had unlimited funds to head up your own research team what would you tackle so far as research in the coming year or what topics are you planning to pursue over the coming year when it relates to performance let me let me alter the question slightly. If I had unlimited funds so that I could hire someone else to do research, so I I didn't have yes, to do absolutely. it, but I could I could, I could direct absolutely. it. Because the, the, uh, you know, the area, the, some of the research that I've found most interesting recently uh, comes from Steven Seiler and his colleagues in Norway who've done some really interesting training studies. And Steven Seiler, mm -hmm. he's, he's sort of well known for polarization, you know, 80-20 kind of training. But he, more recently, he was trying to do things on uh, periodization and, and inter the length of intervals. And the, the, the problem with 99.99% of training studies is that they, they're comparing either completely unrealistic scenarios or they're, they're changing too many variables. So you'll be like, we want to know whether tempo runs or intervals are better. So one group is going to do five tempo runs a week for two weeks, and one group's going to do five interval workouts a week for two weeks. And it's like, but that's Nobody does that, <laughs> you know. That's not how how people train. So if you want to understand the, the, the you know the pros and cons of interval training versus te tempo runs, you need to do six days a week are the same, and one day a week you you replace a tempo run with intervals or vice versa. And so I think there's the, the, you know our knowledge of of training methodologies of things like whether it's tapering and periodization and intervals and even and your know, weekly structure of training is absolutely. Um, 100% based on trial and error by coaches and athletes. And that's a very good source of knowledge. But I would love to see more training studies like the ones that Steven Seiler and his colleagues have, have done where they're testing like, okay, let's have athletes do, he did one on block periodization. So, you know, traditional periodization moving from long intervals to medium intervals to short intervals. Then it's like, okay, let's have another group matched group do exactly the same workouts, but in a different order, they'll move from like short intervals to long intervals or from in a random order, like short, medium, long or, or, or whatever. And let's see if it makes a difference. And, and, you know, one of the initial results is, you know, actually maybe the sort of long to short periodization, it's not magic. It doesn't necessarily produce better results than short, short to long. And that's interesting to know, but those are super, super hard studies to do because you have to have motivated athletes who are well-trained and willing to put their training in your hands for, you know, eight weeks at a time or more. That's going to be really, really interesting to follow over the course of the, the coming year plus for sure. It's, uh, it's interesting. Now, here comes the last question, Alex, and uh, this is where you get, you sort of 
called up and uh, the first to dance at the <laughs> wedding. It's uh, and and let me put some context behind this. Over the last sort of through the blizzard of COVID nineteen and everything that has happened, we've been really encouraging our athletes to stabilize and adapt to the life and then emerge stronger and embrace the journey of performance. So important, but. Uh, uh, in doing so, we've asked athletes to decide on a BHAG, and you're desperate to know what a BHAG is, what it is, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And that is something that is a little scary, feels like a stretch, but would excite you by accomplishing it. But also, you can draw, but just by going on the journey towards it, you're going to draw a whole bunch of benefits, a whole bunch of lessons. And so, as you have emerged stronger from the chaos and you look forward, do you have any big, hairy, audacious goals or for yourself personally? Yeah, I mean, so I, I could always talk about running, uh, but the truth is if, if the biggest goals I'm thinking of this year are not necessarily about, you know, running 5K in, in, in X number of minutes. Um, the thing that I'm thinking about right now that that scares me a little bit is I'm trying to organize a, a, a canoe trip with some friends. I've gone on these canoe trips uh, I've gone trips with the same friends for the last few years, and it's been flat water, lakes, and portages. But I would like us to, in the long term, progress towards being able to go on some pretty remote whitewater trips up in, let's say, the Yukon. And to get there, it's a multi-year journey, and so, and I've been kind of delaying getting going on that. But this year, I've put out the call. I want us to go. Uh, to, for a trip on the Spanish River, which is uh, a river in northern Ontario that's often considered a sort of first whitewater river. And that scares me because whitewater has, uh, uh, let's say it has... It has risks. Things, yeah, th things can go wrong. And I'm probably the most experienced canoeist on the trip. And I've done whitewater before, but always in the front of the canoe, not the back. So it's going to require me to do a lot of preparation. It's going to require my friends to do some preparation. It's going to require all of us to sort of work together and to, to make sure we can do this in a safe way. Um, but it's, that's what gets me, that's what's, that's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm sort of lying, lying awake when, after I wake up in the morning thinking about, you know, can we do this? How are we going to do this? How should we, what, what are the logistics? Who's going to be in which canoe and all that sort of stuff. That's my, I, I don't know what's going to happen. That's, that's the nature of big, hairy, audacious goals. I think is that um, it's not a slam dunk. Maybe we're not going to do it, but I, 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 I'm hoping we will, you know, and, and pandemic permitting and all that, I'm hoping we will manage to do our first whitewater canoe trip together. What an adventure and um, in, in, incredible. I'd really, really sort of uh, give you big props for taking it on. And, uh, and of course, going on the journey, you're going to learn a whole bunch. And um, and, and, and hof hopefully I'll, I will gain massive upper body muscle strength by doing lots of strength training in order to be able to carry the canoe. So the, it, 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 the journey will be worthwhile, whether, whatever the, the, the ending destination you is. You might even get those compression tights to fit. So uh, at, least, <laughs> at least the upper body one. So uh, no, it's great. It's a wonderful journey. And uh, I cannot help but tell you my one, one quick one minute rafting story. I did a multi-day rafting trip in which you, you're going down actually the uh, um, South Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. It was a wonderful adventure. They had a, a, a great group. But one of our very close friends is this incredible kayaker. She was she was actually world champion in kayaking and was one of these crazy people that would jump off of waterfalls before anyone else. <laughs> and uh, 
and that the the humbling that took place as an athlete because while going down this multi-day river trip and the raft is obviously the easiest way you can get down they also had inflatable kayaks you could go on and stand up paddle boards which of course was really nice for the flatter sections of the river and Jamie our friend as I took on a class four rapid in this inflatable kayak and had a pulsating fear going through me and she helped me very strategically on the line through the river and she said you know I'm going to do this on a uh, on a stand-up paddleboard <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I said, I didn't know you were a stand-up paddleboarder. Oh, I'm not. I've only done it a couple of times on Lake Tahoe. And there she would. She went through in front of me as I uh, as I tipped into the water and uh, prayed for survival. But uh, but it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> and so on my hands and knees, very much, uh, very much humbled by the great Jamie Simon. So, uh, so there it is. But uh, I, I, I tell you, Alex, uh, thank you so, so much. I, I really appreciate it. It was uh, it, we, we we didn't succeed on the three minute topics, but we did cover off on a lot. And uh, and I, I really thank you. I guess the last thing I want to finish off with Performance Academy members and Purple Patch athletes, you guys are going to have the very, very lucky opportunity to have a live Q&A with Alex over the coming weeks. So as uh, as members of the Performance Academy and Purple Patch athletes, we're going to send you that information. But Alex has graciously agreed to do a quick live session to answer your own questions around anything around performance. But, but Alex, for this session, I, I owe you, mate. I really, really appreciate it and want to thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Matt. It was a, it was a privilege and it was a lot of fun to, uh, to trade opinions and, uh, and talk through some of these things where I think we, we are, we, in maybe disappointingly, we agree on, on too much, but, uh, <laughs> not, not enough conflict. Uh, it, we, we couldn't argue, <laughs> but thanks mate. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Listeners, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed what a couple of episodes this has been. And remember, Performance Academy members, look out for our live Q&A with Alex. We're excited to have a roundtable. I can't wait to hear what questions you have for him. You've got your notepad, scribble on them. Make sure you come armed with lots of questions. And for everyone else, all of you, stay sane keep pragmatic and apply the lessons of these last two episodes. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to next time. It's another goodie. Until then, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, would really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!